On March 14, 1782, the U.S. Army almost disbanded. They quit, almost, leaving the country unprotected if they had. And the reason was is that Congress had failed to pay the officers and the soldiers for their service. And, uh, you know, typically if something goes wrong, Congress is probably, you know, nearby, has something to do with it. Um, but even at, at the time, I'll give Congress a little bit of a pass, not much, but a little bit, because at the time, Congress uh, did not even have the power to tax. And that might sound like a wonderful idea that needs to be revisited. However, there are some problems with it. For example, if you don't have the power to tax, you really have trouble paying people that need to be paid, like your army officers and soldiers. And so, you know, sometimes at that day, things got so bad that the army had to requisition, which means steal, supplies from its own citizens. And that didn't make the citizens very happy either, as you can imagine. So a letter was circulated among the army officers imploring them to come together to discuss this possibility to get their pay back by threatening to disband. And of course, if the army officers and the soldiers followed through on that threat, the country which had just defeated uh, the British at the Battle of York, Yorktown not too long before, the country would be unprotected and the British might come back in. Well, General George Washington, our greatest president, believed that such a plan of action would be disastrous. And it could actually result in the United States falling back into tyranny, even in its infancy. And uh, he, he shared that same concern the soldiers had and the officers had about the pay. And he was concerned that the Congress had failed to pay the army, but he was also determined to prevent a mutiny among his officers. And so when the day of the assembly finally came about, General Horatio Gates, who was a rival to George Washington, and he was also second in command to Washington, he began to chair the meeting, and he was in favor of this idea. Well, slipping in through a side door in uh, this place called the Temple of Virtue, um, unnoticed was George Washington himself. And then Washington spoke up and said, General Gates, would you mind if I said a few words? Well, Gates was in no position to refuse. And so Washington then read a nine-page letter that he had spent four days perfecting. In this letter, he agreed that the men should be paid, but he also said that the plan to threaten to disband the army had, quote, something so shocking in it that humanity revolts at the idea. He implored the officers to give one more distinguished proof of unexampled patriotism and patient virtue by placing their full confidence in the purity of the intentions of Congress. Now, it was true that the officers and soldiers had suffered greatly by not being paid, but Washington reminded them that he had been with them from the first day of their struggle together. He vowed to continue to do all that he could to persuade Congress to pay them. He asked them if they were actually willing to leave their wives, children, and property unprotected and defenseless in the face of a British army who would undoubtedly return and to, to reclaim the colonies. Even worse, he said the officers would sully the glory they had won on the battlefield were they to march upon Congress to demand their pay. And so instead of opening 
the floodgates of civil discontent, Washington pleaded with the men to give their elected representatives time to solve this problem. And as George Washington looked around the room, he could see by the officer's body language that he had not won them over. They remained unimpressed and as steadfast as ever to disband the army if necessary, even at the risk of the nation falling into tyrannical hands. George Washington was, at this critical juncture, facing his most difficult opponents, the officers under his command. He was about to lose them. And if they were lost, so too would be the nation. These officers, some of whom had been with Washington for eight years, had the greatest respect for him. George Washington stood at a height of six feet, two inches, a full six inches taller than the average man of that day. He spoke softly, and his words were always chosen carefully. He had a commanding presence, a natural-born leader. He believed in his men. He was a man himself of exemplary character. He treated others with the utmost of respect. He personally invested in the cause that he was fighting for. The officers that day had a man standing before them who seemed superhuman. The man that they would strive to be. A man who seemingly had no flaws, no weaknesses. Yet they remained unmoved by Washington's appeals. Well, there's only one last thing Washington could do. He would read a letter from a congressman who promised to, look, to work toward getting the army its pay. And so Washington took the letter and he unfolded it, opened it, and he tried to read the first paragraph. But in a fashion most unlike the George Washington, all the officers knew he was stumbling over the words. And so he paused for a moment, and he reached into his pocket for a pair of spectacles, and he put them on his face. And then he said, Gentlemen, you must pardon me. I have grown gray in your service, and now find myself growing blind. That disarming act of vulnerability from their otherwise stoic leader was so deeply moving that many of his officers wept, ashamed that in the midst of the sacrifices of their leader, their own selfishness might undo all that for which they worked. On the next day, the officers resolved to present Washington, quote, with the unanimous thanks of the officers, and that the officers reciprocate his affectionate expressions with the greatest sincerity of which the human heart is capable. The mutiny was over. Washington overcame his adversaries, and he kept his promise, writing one letter after another to Congress 
until the officers finally received five years of full pay for their service in the army. He overcame his opponents. And today I want to talk about that very idea. Opposition will rise to obstruct every worthwhile project that you ever try to do. Whether it's a project at work or at school or at home or in, or in, in the world or in the church or just a project where you're trying to better yourself, opposition will rise. But true leadership rises to face the challenge. And today, we will discover from God's Word every possible tactic that your adversaries will use to oppose you. And we will also dis discover the strategies that you can use to defend yourself and overcome them. And so I encourage you again this week to take notes because the principles that we'll learn about in this section of the book of Nehemiah are pure gold. Corporations pay millions of dollars every year for experts to come in and advise their employees and principles such as these, but God, in his wisdom, gives them to us for free if we're wise enough to read his word. And so I invite you, if you have access to a Bible, to turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. The verses today will not appear on the screen behind you, and so I do invite you to get out your own Bible. There's a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you if you need to, to access that, or some of you have the Bible on your phone. But Nehemiah chapter 4, and we're in the series, Rebuilding, Life Tools from Ezra, Nehemiah. Now here's the first thing you need to know about facing opposition. It's the, it's the simple principle. We learn it in physics. We learn it in life. Every moving object encounters resistance. And so if you're going to do anything of any consequence, expect resistance. Expect opposition. I mean, if you have some grand scheme, some little plan, whatever it is, but it's, if it's of any consequence to you, and you're going to pull this thing off, and you think it's going to be easy, let me tell you, you're about to get discouraged very quickly. Because if you get started, and the first sign of opposition surprises you, oh, I didn't expect that, you're probably just going to give up because you're going to be too shocked to continue. And so be smart about this. Expect opposition when you're trying to do something, especially if you're trying to obey the will of God in your life. If you're trying to fulfill your calling, the calling that God has given you in your life, expect opposition. And so when Nehemiah got started on his project, and we know his project was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, no small task, something he couldn't do by himself. His project was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Ultimately, he faced nine different kinds of opposition. The first kind of opposition he faced was apathy. And this is actually found in a, in a previous chapter. In chapter 3, verse 5, there's a big listing of all these people that are working on the wall. And they're right there, just a part of this verse, hidden in the midst of all of the rest of these uh, names and numbers and all of this. There's this little verse in chapter 3, verse 5, we read, Beside them the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger 
to help their supervisors. And I think it's not surprising that the very first uh, type of opposition that Nehemiah faced is the first one that you and I would likely face when we try to obey God and do something for Him. It's apathy. We'll encounter people that, hey, they're just not as fired up as you are about whatever it is that God has going on in your life. Or perhaps they just flat out don't care. Absolutely, completely apathetic. They won't even lift a finger to help. So expect that. There's apathy. Then he encountered anger. In chapter 4, verse 1, and this is really the meat of the uh, scriptures that we'll look at today. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. You're going to find people, when you're trying to accomplish God's will in your life, when you're trying to fulfill your calling, you're going to find people, some of whom don't care, others will oppose you and they'll be angry about it. Maybe it affects them. Maybe it threatens them. But they'll be angry with you about it. So be ready for that. And then he faced another kind of opposition from the same guy, by the way. The rest of verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, we read, He, Sanballat, mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria. He mocked the Jews. Ridicule. Ridicule is one of the most effective types of opposition that your adversaries will use. They'll put you down. They'll call you names. They'll mock you. They'll laugh behind your back. They'll post things on social media, which is probably not what Sam Bullitt did. But he could have if he had the tools. They mocked. He mocked the Jews. And then... On top of that, he criticized them. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? And just like You might expect, when you start to criticize someone, someone else jumps in. Oh yeah, let's dogpile this situation. Verse 3, then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. I want you to look at these four tactics so far. All pretty much by the same guy or same group of people. Apathy, anger, ridicule. Criticism. There's something that all four of these have in common. And it's this. All four of these tactics are designed to distract you from accomplishing your project. They're designed to distract you, to get your eyes unfocused. To get you to look to the side. To get you to stop working. To try to discourage you. Now, We know that Satan is a liar, and he is the father of lies. Jesus said this. But I want to ask you a different question. Why? Why does Satan lie? And I want more than simply just, well, it's it's part of his nature. Yes, absolutely, it's part of his nature. But you know what? The reason you do things and the reason I do things are not just because it's part of our nature, but because we have a purpose to it as well. And when Satan lies, he does it not only because it's part of his nature, 
But he has a reason. There is a purpose for Satan's lies. And Satan's lies are designed to do what? Well, it's to deceive us, right? Absolutely. But I want you to understand this. One of Satan's most deceptive tricks is to distract us with his lies. If Satan can get you to turn your focus off of your God-appointed task, well then guess what? You're not serving God effectively anymore, are you? And Satan wins that battle for that day. So I want you to know this. When people who should be on board are apathetic to your cause, when people get angry at you for doing what God called you to do, when people ridicule you for fulfilling your calling, when people criticize you in your calling, it is because at that very moment in time they are instruments of Satan trying to distract you from your calling. By this time in Nehemiah's life, he knew what God wanted him to do. There was no doubt about it. And you are at this point going to be on one side or the other. And these people are using all of these tactics to try to distract Nehemiah from fulfilling his calling. I'm not saying that the people that use these tactics in your life to distract you from your calling, I'm not saying that those people are lost. They may be saved. But I do know this, that at that moment, when anyone saved or lost is opposing the work of God, they are by definition instruments of Satan. Jesus had two instruments of Satan in his own midst. One of them, Judas Iscariot, was lost. The other, Peter, was saved. And yet, what was it that Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. So in the ministry that God gives us, in the ministry that God has given me, when people exhibit these four types of opposition to God's work, I try to respond with the same response that Nehemiah had. Now, this will start a new list. If you are taking notes, you're going to have two lists. One is kinds of opposition, and the second list will be responses to opposition. This is in the responses column. Here's the first response that Nehemiah had. And we're going to go back and forth because that's what the story does. Nehemiah prayed. He prayed. Look at verses 4 and 5. We read, listen our, God, uh, listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads. And let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. They're distracting people from doing their work. So Nehemiah prayed. And by the way, that's a wonderful prayer to pray to God when you're opposed by people that are working as instruments of Satan. Just turn them over to God. Say, God, hey, I can't stop this person from criticizing me, from ridiculing me, from being apathetic. I can't stop this person from being, being angry or anything like that. So, you know, this person's going to do what they're going to do. I turn this person over to you, God. Do what you want with them. Do what you want. And you'll be amazed at what God might do. If you're truly doing the work of God, God will come to your defense. And you can read the New Testament about Ananias and Sapphira, see what happened to them. You can read the New Testament about what, God, what Paul said about the Lord's Supper. 
and partaking of the Lord's Supper while having a spirit of disunity and tearing apart the very body of Christ? Paul says that's why some of you are sick and some of you are dead. God will go to battle if you oppose his work. It's a serious thing. So Nehemiah turned these enemies over to God through prayer. And then he also kept on working. Look at verse 6. Here's another response to opposition. Keep on working. We read, So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had the will to keep working. My goodness, do not be controlled by your adversaries. If you do, every time they sneeze, you're going to stop what God wants you to do. Every time they look at you with a sideways glance, you're going to stop what God wants you to do. Listen, if God has given you a task to complete, complete it. Go on without them. You don't need them. And so Nehemiah prayed. He kept on working. But guess what? Praying and working. All the praying and working of Nehemiah. It didn't stop the opposition. Not immediately. There was still going to be some more opposition. And so the next kind of opposition that came up against them was sabotage. Got to look out for this one. Someone will try to get in and sabotage the work that you're trying to do. Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4. When Sambalat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. Here's more anger. Verse 8. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. So here we are again. Sabotage is the next weapon of choice of your opponents. Have you ever been sabotaged at work? Have you ever been sabotaged in some important project that you're trying to complete at school? It happens. It's a tactic of the devil. Well, all of this sabotaging caused the people to get discouraged, as you can imagine. And what is the healing elixir for discouragement? When someone is discouraged, what do you do? You encourage them, right? And so that was the next kind of response that Nehemiah had, encouragement. And so we read in chapter 4, verses 9 through 14, So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborer fails since there is so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. So, I station people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I station them by families. You're going to defend your family. I station them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Verse 14, after I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. 
Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. Sometimes one of the greatest tools that you can ever use is encouragement. Then Nehemiah and his officers, after this, they showed true leadership. Leadership is always leadership by example. It's the leadership of being involved. And when the leaders lead by example, the people step up. And so that's the next tool that Nehemiah used, true leadership. We read in verse 15 through 17, When our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah. That's a big deal. The officers were the leaders. They were there supporting the work. Verse 17, all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall, the laborers who carried the loads, worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Well, the adversaries weren't finished at that point. What do you do if the adversaries try to sabotage the work again? Well, that's when you need to put up a guard. And that's another thing Nehemiah did, guarding. Verses 18 through 23, we read, Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the one who sounded the ram's horn was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, officials, and the rest of the people, The work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the ram's horn, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we continued the work, while half of the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let everyone and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. And I, my brothers, my servants, and the men of the guard with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon, even when washing. At this point, it seems like Nehemiah's done a really good job, and the opposition has been completely overcome. But that's not the whole story. Because when you have a really important project, not only might you face opposition from outside, you might even face opposition from within. And that's what Nehemiah discovered. He had some people on the inside who started to complain. And nothing can stop God's work quicker. Then complaining. We read in chapter 5, verse 1, There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. And we're going to find three different types of complaints, and these three different types of complaints exist to this day. Complaint number one, this is too hard. It's just too hard of a work. Look at verse 2. In chapter 5, some were saying, We, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so we can eat and live. This work is just too hard. You have other people that will complain about money. The price costs too much. Next verse, verse 3. 
Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Then you're going to have other people who complain, this is not fair. Verses 4 and 5. Still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. And so Nehemiah was bombarded with these complaints all of a sudden. And let me ask you a question. If you're a leader and you're bombarded with complaints, what do you do? Well, if you're human like Nehemiah, you might get a little bit irritated. And that's what Nehemiah did in verse 6. Nehemiah says, I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. So it's no surprise, and I, I think really there's nothing wrong with uh, when you, you first get a complaint, being human and just saying, this is irritating. However, a lot of leaders stop there. A lot of leaders, when they hear a complaint, they get angry, and so out of their anger, they just outright dismiss the complaints, or they ignore the complaints, or they bark back and fight against the complaints. And that's not a good model. If you're a leader, you need to do what Nehemiah did. Yeah, he got, he got angry in verse 6 when he first got bombarded with these complaints. But look at the first phrase of verse 7. After seriously considering the matter. It is no crime to be human and to get irritated even if you think something is distracting you from fulfilling your calling. However, the complaints may have truth to them. And so you need to seriously consider the matter. I mean, no one likes to receive complaints, but take the time to take them seriously. Because sometimes people will complain about something that has nothing to do with the project. They're mad about something over here on the side that happened to them three days before. But if the complaints are legitimate, you don't want to dismiss them. In fact, you need to create a plan to provide for the people's needs. And that's what Nehemiah did. Another response to opposition, he planned out what he would do. So in verse 7, after seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, Each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, We have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners, but now you sell your own countrymen, and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and could not say a word. Then I said in verse 9, what you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please, let's stop charging this interest. Return their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and fresh oil that you have been assessing them. They responded, 
We will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priests and made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the folds of my robe and I said, May God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. The whole assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they had promised. Nehemiah had another tool in his toolbox. And it is such an important one. If you're trying to accomplish a God-given task, it is humility. You must humble yourself before others. Look at what Nehemiah says, what he writes in verses 14 through the end of this chapter. Furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. They're not eating in the corporate boardroom. They're down in the cafeteria with everybody else. Verse 15. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking from them food and wine as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people. But because of the fear of God, I didn't do this. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of this wall, and all my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. There were 150 Jews and officials, as well as guests from the surrounding nations, at my table. He ate with people, uh, 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 all kinds of people, commoners. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every ten days, but I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I've done for this people. Well, in spite of all of that, Nehemiah's opponents weren't finished. I mean, so far, Nehemiah had faced apathy, anger, ridicule, criticism, sabotage, complaints. Maybe the way to deal with this guy, they thought, let's just off him. Let's kill the guy. Physical harm. Look what happened in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Nehemiah was ready. It said, When Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it, though at the time I had not installed the doors in the city gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent me a message, Come, let's meet, in the, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. They were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing important work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal, and I gave them the same reply. Well, the, the threat to harm him didn't work. He saw it coming. And so then they tried a different tactic altogether, intimidation. Look at verses 5 through 9. Sanballat. 
sent me this same message a fifth time by his aide, who had an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem agrees, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you're rebuilding the wall. According to these reports, you are to become their king and have even set up the prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf there is a king in Judah. These rumors will be heard by the king. So come, let's confer together. Then I replied to him, there is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind. For they were all trying to intimidate us. Saying they will drop their hands from the work and it will never be finished. But now my God, strengthen my hands. That didn't work either. Well, there's one last way. To oppose a person. There's one last tactic that your adversaries will use. And this one is the sneakiest of all. This is the one that you don't see coming. Because your enemies will try to use your virtues against you. They will try to use your calling by God against you. This is called entrapment. In verses 10 through 14 of chapter 6, we read, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was restricted to his house. He said, let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let's shut the temple doors because they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. But I said, Should a man like me run away? How can someone like me enter the temple and live? I will not go. And he writes, I realized that God had not sent him because of the prophecy he spoke against me. Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He was hired so that I would be intimidated, do as he suggested, sin and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat for what they have done and also the prophetess Noadiah and the other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. As soon as he got word from this last adversary, Go into the temple and hide. He knew it was not from God because he, as the governor, had no place in the temple. That was not for him. That would have been a sin and they would have been able to discredit him. Entrapment. Listen, this, in this long passage, we have all of these tactics of your opponents laid out. We have all of these responses to opposition laid out for us right there in plain sight. Jesus said that the scriptures are seed. He called the scriptures the seed that implants the human heart. 
And I hope, if nothing else, today you've been able to see the truth of God's Word. God's Word is truth. And I've hoped that these seeds would be planted in your heart so that you might know that God has given us a sure and accurate record of His revelation in the Scriptures. He has given us His Word to guide us so that we could live by it. And the most important message that you could ever read about in God's Word, the core, the crux of the Word of God is this message, that the eternal Son of God came to earth, lived a life of no sin, died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and He rose from the grave to give us eternal life. And that if we would receive Him, we would have those gifts. We would have the gift of forgiveness. We would have the gift of eternal life. And all we have to do to respond to God is as easy as ABC. Number one, admit that you are a sinner, that you have failed to meet God's standards. Secondly, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And third, you must commit to follow Him. This commitment to follow Him is not simply a a commitment that you make for the rest of this day, but it's a lifelong commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you will do that, if you'll respond in faith, Jesus will save you.